When I covered the year 1947 on the first part of the Minutes of Our Mythology series, I purposely left out one big event. And it's an event in and of itself that requires a lot of unpacking. So much so that the next four parts of our solo episodes will be dedicated to the topic. Of course, I'm talking about the Roswell incident. In many ways, Roswell is a gateway drug into the UFO phenomenon, and a topic that is so divisive that new theories are being explored over 70 years later. Prior to 1978, UFOs were a thing of the sky. Sometimes they landed, and sometimes their occupants exited their vehicles and presented themselves to the average citizen. They all looked different. If one were to survey the literature of close encounter of the third kind cases from the 40s to now, the beings are so varied, enough to make you believe that the planet was being peppered by numerous alien species over the years. It wasn't until the 80s when the abduction phenomenon presented a form that has largely remained the same ever since. Sure, there are variant beings that participate in abduction-related phenomenon, but their main form is short with chalky skin, a large bulbous head, and black almond-shaped eyes. One thing that UFOs didn't do, though, was crash. The idea was preposterous on the face of it, but it was not wholly ridiculous either. Why couldn't the pilots of these crafts make mistakes, if they were piloted? And even if they weren't, why wasn't their ability to fail plausible? By 1978, the idea was not a widely accepted one. No serious UFO researcher thought about UFOs as something imperfect. That is until July of 1978. The annual MUFON Symposium took place in Dayton, Ohio that year, not far from Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. It was a fitting location, as all three government-funded UFO research projects, Projects Sign, Grudge, and Blue Book, were run out of Wright-Pat. Leonard Stringfield, a private UFO investigator who was well-respected in the UFO community, delivered a bombshell presentation. Not only had UFOs crashed, but there had been many since the late 40s, and the government had retrieved them all. For over two hours, Stringfield listed examples of crash retrievals that had taken place. There had been one in 1953 near Kingman, Arizona. One in the California desert in 1952, which included reports of wreckage being sent to Wright Pat. There were claims of an army training film that included footage of a crashed UFO. One man was said to have stood guard over alien bodies in Ohio, and a woman came forward claiming to see the bodies of aliens up close at Wright Pat. One of the incidents Stringfield presented occurred near the tiny village of Corona, New Mexico. As it turned out, there were two men interviewing eyewitnesses to this event. One was Stringfield himself. The other was a man who would help bring Roswell into the mainstream and make it a household name for millions of people. His name is Stanton Friedman. What's up, Euphonauts? Welcome to the Our Strange Skies Podcast. It started as an innocent, offhand comment. Quote, The person you really ought to talk to is Jesse Marcel. He handled pieces of one of those things. End quote. 
The date was February 20th, 1978, and Stanton Friedman was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, giving a lecture called Flying Saucers a Real at Louisiana State University. Friedman earned his master's degree in nuclear physics in 1956 from the University of Chicago. He worked for such companies as GE, GM, and Westinghouse for 14 years before chasing that UFO dream. He became interested in the topic in 1958, when completing an order form for a book club. He needed another title to get free shipping on the order, and took a chance on Edward J. Ruppelt's The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects. While it didn't convince him of the reality of UFOs in our skies, it led him to read many more books. At UC Berkeley, he stumbled upon a report called Project Blue Book Special Report 14, which is a survey of UFO sightings examined by the Battelle Memorial Institute in Columbus, Ohio. They combed through 3,200 UFO cases and determined that 22% of them were unknown, which clashes against the 3% that the Air Force had originally proposed for unidentified cases. In 1970, Friedman left nuclear science behind and became a UFO researcher full-time, giving countless lectures over the years throughout the United States, Canada, and the world at large. Friedman had been doing interviews in advance of the talk on various radio and TV programs when the director of a local TV station made the offhand remark. He elaborated, explaining Marcel's position as a major in the Air Force, and that the stuff he handled was wreckage from a flying saucer. Friedman had heard stories of crash saucers before, but they were all troublesome. They were often related through second- or third-hand sources, or no names were given at all, making it impossible to follow up on any leads. This time was different, though. He had a name, Jesse Marcel. The next day, while waiting to board a plane headed for his next lecture, he dialed information to find Jesse Marcel, who was living in Homa, Louisiana at the time. On the phone, Marcel talked about being the security officer at Roswell Army Airfield and getting a call while eating lunch at the officer's club one day. The local sheriff told him about strange pieces of wreckage on a nearby ranch. He departed for the local sheriff's office in Chaves County and talked to the rancher, William Mac Brazel. Brazel showed him pieces of the wreckage and, after consulting with his commanding officer, was told to take along a counterintelligence corpsman and investigate the wreckage. Along with Captain Sheridan Cavett, more on him later, Marcel drove out to the Foster Ranch and discovered a debris field that was less than a square mile. Marcel went on to describe three different distinct types of debris. The first was an aluminum foil type of material that was very thin, but extremely strong. He said that it reminded him of the foil that came in cigarette packs. The second type were short pieces of I-beam, with odd markings that didn't resemble anything Marcel had seen before. The third type was a heavy paper-like substance that was thin and strong, too, like the foil. The honest feature of the debris field was that there was no impact crater anywhere, on or near the property which seemed to indicate that whatever happened to this object happened in midair. The two men gathered up pieces of debris and trucked it back to the Roswell Army Airfield. The next day, Marcel's commanding officer, Colonel William Blanchard, ordered him to fly the wreckage to Wright Field, later dubbed Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, to be examined. First, he made a short stop in Fort Worth, Texas, where the 8th Air Force Base was located. 
Brigadier General Roger Ramey had Marcel pose for pictures with a different type of wreckage that Marcel claimed was not what they had recovered and was clearly from a weather balloon. From there, Marcel carried out the remainder of his orders, taking the wreckage to Ohio. What Marcel didn't have for Friedman was an exact date. All he could tell him was that it happened in the late 1940s. Roswell was still decades away from becoming the most recognizable UFO event in history, but this bit of information represented the most compelling narrative so far of an imperfect UFO. The Marcel narrative gnawed away at Friedman. It just wouldn't let go. And it jogged his memory of an anecdote from a woman named Lydia Sleppy. Friedman had been working on a series of magazine articles with Bobby Slate Geronda. She relayed an interesting story from a forest ranger who turned out to be the daughter of Lydia Sleppy. The two eventually tracked her down, and she told them of her time when she had been working at a radio station in Albuquerque, New Mexico. She was in the process of sending out a newswire about the recovery of a crashed flying saucer that was being sent to Wright Field. The FBI had been apparently monitoring the lines at the time, and sent a transmission telling her not to send out the story. She complied. Later, when she tracked down the reporter that had given her the story, he appeared to be nervous about it, and refused to comment any further. Sleppy also had names of the people that she had worked with, but those leads didn't really turn into anything tangible. Later that year, in October of 1978, the narrative would take a strange turn. Friedman was giving a lecture at Bemidji State University in Minnesota when he was approached by Vern and Jean Meltes. Vern relayed the story of a friend named Grady Barney Barnett. He had been working as a field engineer for the U.S. Soil Conservation Service when he came upon a large metallic object sticking out of the ground in western New Mexico. There was a group of archaeologists gathered around the object, staring at a group of dead bodies on the ground. There were bodies inside and outside of the object, which Barnett described as a stainless steel disc. As for the bodies themselves, quote, They were like humans, but they were not humans. The heads were round, the eyes were small, and they had no hair. The eyes were oddly spaced. They were quite small by our standards, and their heads were larger in proportion to the bodies than ours. Their clothing seemed to be one piece, and gray in color. You couldn't see any zippers, belts, or buttons. They seemed to be all males, and there were a number of them. End quote. The main problem with this account is that it comes from a second-hand source. By the time that Friedman had heard it, Barnett had died nearly ten years earlier. While Barnett's account didn't put any definitive nails in the coffin, it was becoming clear to Friedman that he was dealing with two debris sites. Barnett's account came from an area known as San Augustine, while Marcel's was over 150 miles away near the tiny town of Corona. Additionally, while in Bemidji, Friedman would renew his friendship with fellow UFO investigator and local schoolteacher Bill Moore over some pizza. Because pizza is such a great thing. Pizza is a peace offering. You offer it to anybody, and a new piece is, for, is formed. So, you know what? If you want to talk UFOs with anybody, buy them pizza. That's the way to go. So, we've mentioned more on previous episodes, too, uh, pertaining to his part in the Paul Benowitz affair and his involvement in promoting disinformation within the UFO community in the 1980s. 
For more on that, check out our past episodes with guest MJ Benias and the minisode that preceded that episode. While they enjoyed their pizza, Friedman asked Moore to look into the Barnett narrative to see if it could be confirmed by any additional eyewitnesses. In January of 1979, Moore would stumble upon a story from a very unlikely source. In Huey Green's autobiography, Opportunity Knocked, Green was driving across the United States in its early post-war years, and he heard a news report about a recovered flying saucer somewhere in the West. Green was a pilot during World War II and turned to acting after the war, gaining much fame and notoriety in the United Kingdom. Moore struck up a correspondence with Green, jogging his memory in the process, which produced a date for the event, July 1947. On February 10th, 1979, Moore struck Pater while looking through newspaper clippings at the University of Minnesota's main library. The articles detailed the discovery of strange debris on a ranch in New Mexico and went on to describe the nature of the recovery of the materials. The article named names, including Mac Brazel, Brigadier General Roger Ramey, Colonel Thomas Jefferson DuBose, Colonel William Blanchard, First Lieutenant Walter Hott, and Jesse Marcel himself. With this new information, Friedman and Moore shifted their focus to finding these people, if they could be found and suss out what they could remember about the events in July 1947. Moore interviewed Jesse Marcel again and got in contact with his son, Jesse Marcel Jr., a medical doctor and a pilot who had flown missions in Vietnam. Marcel Jr. was able to add more information about the piece of I-beam. Marcel Sr. had taken some of the wreckage home and showed it to his family. His son had been 11 years old at the time. Quote, imprinted along the edge of some of the beam's remnants, there were hieroglyphic-type characters. I recently questioned my father about this, and he recalled seeing these characters also, and even described them as being a pink or purplish-pink color. Egyptian hieroglyphs would be a close visual description of the characters, except that I don't think there were any animal figures present, as there are in true Egyptian hieroglyphs. End quote. He further added, quote, According to my father, some of it was left behind when he and his crew visited the crash site. I suspect, however, that after the true nature of the craft became known to Air Force intelligence, the whole site was gone over with a vacuum cleaner. End quote. Another fascinating piece of the puzzle would come not from our own government, but from our neighbors to the north. In late 1979, Stanton Friedman was shown a declassified, top-secret memo by Canadian UFO investigator Scott Foster. The memo is from a man named Wilbert B. Smith, the controller of telecommunications for the Canadian Department of Transport. He had a keen interest in UFOs and made inquiries about them through the Canadian Embassy in Washington, D.C. In a memo dated November 21, 1950, it read, quote, I made discreet inquiries through the Canadian Embassy staff in Washington, who were able to obtain from me the following information. A. The matter is the most highly classified subject in the United States government, rating even higher than the H-bomb. B. Flying saucers exist. 
C. Their modus operandi is unknown, but concentrated effort is being made by a small group headed by Dr. Vannevar Bush. D. The entire matter is considered by the United States authorities to be of tremendous significance. UFO investigator Arthur Bray was able to dig a bit deeper into the Wilbert Smith mystery. He was able to get in touch with Smith's son, who had in his possession handwritten notes of his father's from a meeting between Smith and Dr. Robert Sarbacher, a consultant with the U.S. Research and Development Board. The conversation between the two contained most of the information from the November 1950 memo and claimed that the origin of the saucers was off-planet. The classification of the matter was greater than that of the H-bomb, and their modes of flight were yet to be discovered. In 1983, UFO investigator William Steinman engaged in a brief correspondence with Dr. Sarbacher, who confirmed the meeting between the two through the Canadian Embassy. He also mentioned a crash retrieval that had taken place, the people that had worked on reverse engineering the craft, and even talked about the body chemistry of the aliens the government had supposedly recovered. While these documents and correspondence were fascinating, they were just another vague piece that didn't fully connect. It's important to note that we're in the age of disinformation at this time, too. The Office of Air Force Special Investigations is in full swing, fending off Paul Benowitz's interest in Kirtland Air Force Base. Bill Moore is working with the government to spread certain pieces of disinformation. However, Dr. Sarbacher was a well-respected man with a high security clearance and believed to be a highly credible person. Wilbert Smith himself was a highly respected engineer. If they were truly trying to perform a hoax, they went to great lengths to orchestrate one. What do we know by the end of 1979? We know that crash saucers are more plausible than ever, and that one appears to have crash-landed in eastern New Mexico in 1947. This incident is not a singular one, but consists of two debris fields separated by approximately 150 miles. We have a number of names, including Jesse Marcel, who recovered debris that was lightweight, but strong and durable. We know that Barney Barnett came upon a disc-shaped object embedded into the desert floor on the plains of St. Augustine, and that there were bodies inside and outside the craft. We know that Lydia Schleppi was interrupted by the FBI while trying to send a news wire about the recovery of a saucer in New Mexico in 1947. We know that Marcel was ordered to fly the material to Wright Field, and that he was ordered by Brigadier General Roger Ramey to pose for pictures with wreckage of a weather balloon that Marcel claims was not what they had recovered at the ranch. When we come back from the break, we will continue to detail the history of the crash and look at the mythology that was built up around it. In January of 1980, Leonard Stringfield would publish a follow-up to the first report detailing UFO crash retrievals. In this second status report, errors were corrected and additional sources were included. It also contained an illustration of an alien body that a doctor claimed to have performed an autopsy on. However, Stringfield's broad approach added little validity to the number of cases he had reported on. What he brought to the table was vague anecdotes, protected sources that no one was able to follow up on, and very few details of the actual wreckage recovered from these sites. 
Years later, though, the Corona and San Augustine events would take on a singular identity. In the summer of 1980, Bill Moore published The Roswell Incident with co-writer Charles Berlitz, who had previously worked with Moore on a book about the Philadelphia Experiment. The Roswell Incident consolidated the details of the Corona and San Augustine debris sites and formed them into one misleading narrative that took place near New Mexico's fifth-largest city, Roswell. While the title was misleading, the details were mostly accurate. But they didn't constitute enough to really fill a book. Moore and Berlitz filled out the space with a confusing format and stories of UFO sightings by astronauts. It's kind of funny to watch people post pictures of this book on Instagram, like uh, just vintage copies of it. It's a problematic book. Let's just start there. Realistically, this is where the Roswell narrative begins. Where two crash sites become one. And it, when you first read into that, it's kind of annoying. It's very misleading. And I, and I have problems with that. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to lie. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there really is just one site. But I'm not going to discount what Stanton Friedman had really found himself and some of the people that he interviewed. Like It definitely seems like there are two crash sites here. So there are numerous pros and cons to the book. While it wasn't a runaway bestseller, it put a lot of eyes on this crash. And it would drive a new set of investigators to look into the case. You had people like Don Schmidt, Kevin Randall. Moore would continue his work until the late 80s, which we'll get into in a little bit. You also had Philip J. Corso, who would publish his account. Uh, a, a lot of books would come from this first book. Conversely, the condensed narrative may have done more damage than good. It may be that the consolidation of the narrative was an attempt by Moore to take control of the story. I'm not going to go out and say that Moore was a total ego freak or something like that, but it seems weird that you would consolidate two crash sites into one. But again, that, that could just be me reading into it. You know, if you really want to don that tinfoil fedora, get that son of a bitch out and put it right on. Uh, we could go so far as to say that Moore may have been putting government disinformation out there, or at least confusing the narrative. While I don't think that's likely, I'm not ruling it out either. And I've heard people defend his character, and he may not be a bad guy, but just because you're not a bad guy doesn't mean you didn't do bad things. So, in that case, um, I'm leaving that possibility open. I'm not totally in line with it, but it's, it's, it's a possibility in my book. Between the years of 1980 and 1989, uh, there were a few details that emerged. The UFO community was taking a great interest in the Roswell incident, though. The Canadian connection grew stronger and would continue to until the late 1980s. The biggest revelations, though, came from a highly problematic source, and one that we have previously touched on, the MJ-12 documents. As a brief reminder, the MJ-12 documents are a set of briefing papers for then-President-elect Dwight D. Eisenhower. They detailed the formation of a covert group, Majestic 12, who were responsible for dealing with the UFO problem. They also allegedly detailed the recovery 
of the crash saucer near Roswell. This set of documents was studied for years, for and people are still studying them, trying to make them into something that is valid. They're too problematic to take as anything serious. I'm sorry, but they are. If you honestly think that the MJ-12 documents are legit, there's too much to suggest that they're not. For instance, they described the public reaction to the Flying Saucer reports in 1947 as bordering on mass hysteria. We know that today is total bullshit. The reaction was one of ridicule. People mocked the hell out of anybody that saw a UFO, including the press. So, that's a lie. What we do know, and what, you know, it, it could have been sussed out early on in this investigation because, to me, the, the, the dates were starting to be pinned down. It does mention that the operation to recover the craft was carried out on July 7th or July 8th. And it does describe bodies being found on an additional site away from the Foster Ranch. However, my one big gripe with these documents is that it mentions Roswell by name. And sure, Roswell may have been the largest city center there at the time. But the problem is, is that, to me, if you're going to be present accurate information, you're going to mention that, that this wreckage was found near Corona and near St. Augustine, not Roswell. Roswell was 75 miles to the southeast, the Corona debris field. So that to me is problematic. And, and some people may say that I'm reading into that. Sure. No problem. That's fine. But I think mentioning Roswell in these papers is kind of the smoking gun for people. Even though it's years later before Roswell is even mentioned in this crash site as being significant to it, or at least attaching some significance to it, that's a problem for me. But again, I'm not going to discount that and say that I'm not reading into this a little bit. But again, MJ12 documents, total bullshit. The fact that people keep promoting them on shows like Ancient Aliens. Bullshit. In July of 1989, at the annual MUFON Symposium, held in Las Vegas, Nevada that year, Bill Moore departed from UFO research, uh, admitting his part in the disinformation campaign against Paul Benowitz, and helping to introduce other forms of disinformation into the UFO community. I honestly believe that Moore and Jamie Chandra definitely played a part with the MJ-12 documents. I, to me, there's too much to suggest that that is the case. With Moore's reputation damaged, Friedman looked to a different outlet to help flesh out new details. He turned to NBC and its hit show, Unsolved Mysteries. That's right, Robert Stack's coming back to haunt your goddamn dreams again. That's what he does. Robert Stack is... He's a wraith, okay? He he just haunts people till their dying day. If I meet this man in the afterlife, I'm going to tell him all about the torment that he left upon my young psyche. In September of 1989, a half-hour-long segment, which is like half that damn show, it's that's a large chunk devoted to anything on Unsolved Mysteries, 
I think the only segment that was longer, and I believe it was a whole episode dedicated to it, was the Alcatraz, the escapes from Alcatraz. So this half-hour segment kicks off the new season of the show. It contained reenactments of the debris discovered at the Corona site, uh, you know, with Mac Brazel and, and such. And it also detailed the recovery of the bodies at St. Augustine. I also remember watching this as a kid, and I, and I haven't seen this segment in a long time, but I remember there being a little thing about the bodies being recovered and that when they brought them into like a hospital, when they went to examine it, it the odor was so bad, everybody had to leave the room, some people ended up uh, vomiting and such. I think I'm remembering that correctly, but I could be wrong. Friedman served as a technical advisor for the segment and appeared as an on-air expert as well. And so did UFO researcher Kevin Randall, who will begin to play a part in the Roswell narrative. The segment drew such high ratings that NBC aired it again in January of 1990 and drew even higher ratings then. Numerous calls came in after both airings and led to the emergence of some more details about the Corona and San Augustine sites. The Brazil narrative started to gain a little more strength as the date of the debris discovery was nailed down, which was July 3rd. Brazil was not alone at the time either. A young man named D. Proctor was helping him on the ranch that day when they came across the wreckage. In a July 1990 interview with his mother, Loretta Proctor, she claimed to hold pieces of a tan, light brown plastic that she described as being similar to balsa wood. The substance couldn't be cut or burned. Mac Brazel's son, William, also came forward, claiming to handle the tinfoil type of material. That material was equally indestructible. Every time he would go to tear it, it just wouldn't. It wouldn't. He couldn't do it. So that adds more to that compelling narrative. It was becoming clear that a lot of people before Brazel went to the sheriff's office had handled this stuff. Like, it seemed to be getting around town. It's interesting that despite that, more people didn't come forward sooner. It wasn't until July 6th that Brazel took some of the debris to Chaves County Sheriff's Office. George Wilcox noted the unusual nature of the pieces and then phoned the Roswell Army Airfield uh, talking to Jesse Marcel. Further details about Barney Barnett's side of the story were confirmed as well. Uh, William Leed, a career military officer, talked with Barnett about the alien bodies and the object embedded in the desert floor. Former neighbor, Harold Baca, came forward with his own claim that Barney had told him about the crash saucer and the alien bodies as well. For whatever reason, Barney Barnett just told this story to everybody. Presumably, I guess the military didn't get to him up front, uh, because what you're going to find in the next series is that, or the next part of the series, is that one of the tenants of the crash is that uh, the government basically told Mac Brazel to shut up about it and that he was seen in certain situations being nervous about it. 
The most promising and disappointing lead to come from the Unsolved Mysteries airings came from a man named Gerald Anderson. He was only five or six years old when he visited the plains of St. Augustine with his brother Glenn, his father, his uncle Ted, and his cousin Victor, searching for what they call Moss Agate, which is a semi-precious stone. The group followed an arroyo to a clearing beyond a small stand of trees and came upon a silver disc-shaped object embedded into a small hillside, resting at a 45-degree angle. The object had cut across the arroyo from a nearby hill, leaving a large gouge behind it and setting fire to the sagebrush nearby. The object had a gash in it that his brother Glenn tried to climb inside before being pulled off by Jerry. The object was cold to the touch, which was odd considering how hot it was on the day in question. While walking around the object, they came upon three bodies on the ground, two that weren't moving, and a third that was breathing in a labored manner. It appeared that the third one tried to administer first aid to the other two, and they sussed this out because it looked like they had bandages on their body, and the bandage substance they didn't really recognize, but... Uh, they did find it in a box next to this third alien, which they assumed to be like a first aid kit. Uncle Ted tried speaking to the being in Spanish for whatever reason. I, I don't really know why, uh, but it didn't respond to him. And every time any one of them moved, the being would put its arms up and recoil as if it was afraid of being hit. They described its movements as being like a cat, like a scared cat, so... Shortly after, Anderson and his family was approached by an archaeology professor and a small group of students who had been camping out the night before and were coming to investigate a meteor that they thought they had seen the previous night. Anderson produced a sketch of the man that they determined to be Dr. Winfred Buskirk. At last, a name! Only problem was that Dr. Buskirk was in Arizona at the time of the crash. Anderson tried to cover for this by saying that the man's name was really Adrian Buskirk, but ultimately this piece of evidence was thrown out. It was later revealed that Dr. Buskirk was a teacher at the high school Jerry Anderson went to. And the narrative is going to crumble a little bit more after this. One piece of evidence Jerry produced was a journal that belonged to his now-deceased Uncle Ted that contained details of their encounter with the UFO and the beings. Friedman had the journal tested by forensic expert uh, Richard Brunel. He determined that the paper could have come from the time period, but that the ink was from the 1970s or later. Um... Anderson claimed that his father and his brother occasionally copied the journal, but ultimately this is now a weak piece of evidence. And one of the final nails in the coffin, Anderson was caught in a lie when he claimed that he only talked to Kevin Randall on the phone for approximately 30 minutes. Like, this is going to seem inconsequential to you, but... Just in lining up Anderson's character, it's a little bit of a big deal. Randall and Anderson kind of clashed a lot during the investigation. Eventually, they would go out to the uh, St. Augustine site with Jerry 
and Jerry kind of like they flew in by helicopter and Jerry's like started to come alive and become animated when they went onto this field. But Randall had his reservations and with good reason. So Anderson says that they talked for less than an hour. It was more like half an hour or, or something like that. Randall knew this to be bullshit because he actually had a tape of the conversation and an investigator named John Carpenter actually ended up finding the original bill and it showed that they had talked for over 50 minutes. In 1993, in the uh, MUFON UFO journal, Berliner and Friedman basically came forward and said that they had to discount what Jerry was saying. They maintained their belief that something did happen uh, at the St. Augustine site. But ultimately, Anderson's account didn't add anything to it. Barnett's story still proved to be good. That's uh, And again, it's, it's a testament to Barney Barnett. He was a well-respected guy. Five years after the letter in the MUFON UFO journal... Friedman oddly came forward in support of Anderson, and he ended up slandering Don Berliner and Kevin Randall. He also went so far as to suggest that Berliner just wrote most of Crash of Corona himself. Which is sad to see. Like, realistically, if you're caught in a lie, and if you're caught in multiple lies, I'm sorry, but you're not trustworthy. You kind of need to get over that. It's not going to help your situation by clinging to a narrative which is so problematic that you have to discount it you know, entirely. So, in all honesty, just move the hell on. When we come back from the break, we'll talk about Roswell in the late 90s and the government's response to inquiries made about the incident. Are you fascinated by mysterious legends, the paranormal, or UFOs? Do stories of murder, missing persons, and con men send you down internet rabbit holes? Did you grow up watching the TV show Unsolved Mysteries? Does Robert Stack's voice haunt your nightmares? Then our podcast is for you. I'm Liz. And I'm Samantha. Join us every Wednesday as we discuss the original Robert Stack episodes of Unsolved Mysteries. Follow along with us on Amazon Prime or just tune in for our weekly podcast. We are on iTunes, Google Play, and social media at Perhaps it's you. Welcome to the Kryptonaut Podcast, hosted by Mark Storrs, Chris Carnicelli, Rob Morphy. Join us weekly as we explore everything from aliens, cryptozoology, the occult, ghosts, paranormal phenomenon, ufology, and unsolved mysteries. All while keeping a close eye on our reptilian overlords that dwell in the flat, hollow, robot-infested Earth. This is the Kryptonaut Podcast. We are available at CryptonautPodcast.com. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. I mentioned Sheridan Cavett earlier in the episode as the man who accompanied Marcel to the Foster Ranch to recover some of the wreckage. Cavett maintained that what they recovered was nothing more than a weather balloon, which is odd because Marcel... If he wasn't working on Project Mogul, which we'll get into in a little bit, he had to have known about its existence. He had top secret clearance and all that. There's no reason why he wouldn't know about that. And he would know what a weather balloon looked like. But Cavett maintained and continued to maintain throughout the years that 
it was a weather balloon. He also testified going out to the ranch with a man named Lewis Bill Rickett. What they went out there to do, I'm not exactly sure. They were probably involved in um, the recovery of wreckage or something. There is a great two-part article from Nick Redford on Mysterious Universe about Cavett. He's kind of a... He's a straight-laced guy, but he definitely uh, adds uh, conflicting parts to the narrative. But he talks about how Cavett and Rickett were interviewed separately and bodies were mentioned. The two kind of named themselves and said, did so-and-so tell you about this? Um, They also got kind of uneasy about it, too. But again, it really doesn't add anything to the narrative at all. It just, it's a dissenting narrative. But I will put those articles in the show notes. Definitely go check those out because they are great. By 1994, numerous books had been written about the subject of Roswell, including books by Kevin Randall and Don Schmidt and Colonel Philip J. Corso, whom we'll be talking about on a later episode. It had finally led to pressure from Congress by New Mexico Congressman Stephen Schiff. An inquiry of the events at Roswell was launched by the General Accounting Office and was directed by the Office of the Secretary of the Air Force. They determined that the Roswell wreckage was most likely from Project Mogul Balloon. Project Mogul was a top-secret project that sent balloons into the upper atmosphere with microphones attached to them designed to pick up sound waves from Soviet atomic bomb tests. And it wasn't a long... It was a short while after this project actually started that they detected the first Soviet atomic bomb detonation. It was in later 47. So this would lead to Project Skyhook, which is what they blamed um, the Thomas F. Mantell crash on, was a Skyhook balloon. So... Um, it's kind of interesting that it gets pegged in both, (laughs) in both 1947 and 48 as, you know, false narratives, but, you know, that is what it is. A second report in 1997 addressed the bodies eyewitnesses claimed to see, dismissing them as hoaxes and military dummies. Let me read my prepared statement, and then we'll roll a short video that Captain McAndrew will talk about. And then I will answer some questions. We're confident once the report is out and digested by the public that this will be the final word on the Roswell incident. The conclusion of the first report left no doubt that what was recovered near Roswell, New Mexico in July 1947 was debris from a formerly top secret Army Air Forces research project codenamed Mogul. Mogul was an attempt to acoustically detect Soviet nuclear blasts and ballistic missile launches. Mogul used an odd assortment of equipment carried aloft by a balloon train more than 600 feet long. This balloon train consisted of 25 balloons, attached acoustic devices, and several radar reflectors, which looked like box kites. In 1947, it was the misidentification of these radar reflectors that is most likely the famous flying disc. Today, we are releasing the final report to address questions about alleged bodies associated with the Roswell story. 
This report has four main conclusions. If you have your books, turn to page three. We'll have a lesson. One, Air Force activities which occurred over a period of many years have been consolidated and are now represented to have occurred in two or three days in July 1947. Two, bodies observed in the New Mexico desert were probably test dummies that were carried aloft by U.S. Air Force high-altitude balloons for scientific research. Three, the unusual military activities in the New Mexico desert were high-altitude research balloon launch and recovery operations. The reports of military units that always seemed to arrive shortly after a crash were actually accurate. Descriptions of Air Force personnel engaged in the dummy recovery operations. Four, claims of bodies at the Roswell Army Airfield Hospital were most likely a combination of two separate incidents. One was a 1956 KC-97 aircraft accident in which 11 Air Force members lost their lives, or a 1959 manned balloon mishap in which two Air Force pilots were injured. That information is in this report. These explanations left people unsatisfied, and who could blame them? It came from a branch of the military that had dismissed UFOs as misidentified and natural phenomenon since the late 40s. I remember Bill Clinton being all about Roswell right around the 50th anniversary in 1997. So, uh, with the second report, they, they titled the, the report Final Report. So, uh, the military hasn't really commented on it since then, and I doubt that you'll ever get any other word from them. In 1995, Fox aired a program called Alien Autopsy, Fact or Fiction, that presented footage of an autopsy performed on an alien being allegedly recovered from the crash at Roswell. The initial footage was released by a London-based entrepreneur named Ray Santilli. The show was hosted by Jonathan Frakes, of Star Trek The Next Generation fame. Numerous experts made guest appearances, including biologists, UFO experts, and a Hollywood prop master. The vague nature of the show drew high ratings every time it was aired. I believe it was aired like three times on the Fox network, but people kept coming back for it. The film stands as a shining example of a well-orchestrated hoax in the UFO community today. Nobody believes that this thing is real. In 2006, the events surrounding the film were adapted into a comedy in the UK called Alien Autopsy. And it was only a modest success in the box office. No, I don't think anybody really saw it. Or, I mean, nobody talks about it today. If you'd like to check out Alien Autopsy, Fact or Fiction, I do believe it's on Netflix, and it is dated. It did not age well. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Since 1997, Roswell has become the equivalent of a UFO appetizer dish at a local restaurant. It's the gateway event to all other UFO events, for the novice researcher, and even for the enthusiast. Its disputed nature has helped Roswell remain a strong presence in the UFO community for years. 
Every UFO crash that has been deemed authentic by members of the UFO community seems to have a unique discovery period. The only one that has been investigated in real time was the Kecksburg incident in 1965. We will be covering this uh, incident in October as part of a series about the events of that year. There was a lot of really intense stuff happening in 1965 and all the way up to 1967, so that will be coming uh, down the pike. Of the notable crashes that people still hold up today or are holding up today you know, as we speak, the Aztec crash uh, was initially dismissed as a hoax, but has come to be seen as a strong event just based on the research of Scott and Suzanne Ramsey. They've kind of taken that and run with it. They released a book about it called The Aztec UFO Incident, so... That's one, um, if you heard me on Ryan Sprague's podcast, we talked about that one as not being as plausible just because it was dismissed as a hoax. Because two guys basically wanted to sell fake alien wreckage. They were untrustworthy sources, so I'm I'm on the fence with that one. No one knew of the crash in Cape Girardeau, Missouri until Charlotte Mann told the story of her grandfather on an obscure television program. But researchers have helped make that a stronger case over the years. Uh, they still have a long way to go with it, but I don't know that you're going to get a lot of first-hand accounts just because it happened in 1941 and a lot of the witnesses are passed away. So it's one that I think gets stronger over the years. I would definitely take it over the Aztec crash any day, but... I don't know. We'll see what the future holds for that one. Roswell is a beast of a different nature, though. It took 30 years to come to light within the UFO community, which may attest to the stubborn nature of the researchers themselves. It was a new generation that investigated Roswell, a younger one. And perhaps a newer one will yet make additional discoveries, lending more credence to the events that occurred near Corona and on the plains of St. Augustine. In the remaining parts of our series on Roswell, we will lay out the timeline of events as they happened in 1947, as best we can. I'm going to be looking to Tom Carey and Don Schmidt for most of that, because they worked extensively to kind of, you know, get the Roswell timeline really down to the nitty-gritty. So, we're going to talk about that on the next part. After that, we're going to dive into the theories, which... Uh, one of the most fascinating is Nick Redfern's theory, um, and it's a lot more human than you may think. So if, you've, if you haven't heard or read uh, Nick Redfern's book, Body Snatchers in the Desert, we're going to talk about uh, the theories in that book, as well as the other just crazy batshit theories about what crashed object was. So we got that coming up. Um, and the final part of the series is going to dive into the story of Philip J. Corso, who was allegedly on the team that reverse engineered the craft from Roswell. So you have that to look forward to. Roswell deserves the proper treatment as it's one of the most hotly debated cases still today. And, uh, I've got some strong opinions on it and we'll be getting into that. So, you can find the Our Strange Skies podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, and most podcast apps. If you'd like to get in contact with me, 
You can email the show at ourstrangeskies at gmail.com. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Our Strange Skies. Check out our Facebook group, too. In Grey We Trust, a group for those that look up in Our Strange Skies. A special shout-out to Scott and Forrest over at Astonishing Legends for having me on for the fifth time this year on their podcast. It's so greatly appreciated every time they have me on. I talked about the West Wales flap of 1977 and about a lot of the mass UFO landings that have occurred from the 60s to the 90s, which generally involves children in schools. So if you haven't checked out that episode, uh, definitely go check that out. Special thanks to Chris Cogswell and Marie Mayhew for having me on the Mad Scientist podcast. Uh, We talked about the Fresno Nightcrawlers, and it was a hilarious episode. And if you look at my Twitter handle right now, (laughs) the name Professor Clown Pants uh, came from that episode. So definitely go check that out. If you'd like to support the show, please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It helps us find new listeners and factors into our ranking in the iTunes store, which also helps us to gain new exposure. I don't like to ask for it, but we definitely need it. It, We we could definitely use all the help that we can get. Another way you can help us is just by sharing the show on social media or by telling a friend. Those are the simplest ways to do it. We also have a Patreon page uh, if you want to support the show and get some additional content as well. Rewards include shoutouts, early access to the regular episodes, and monthly bonus episodes called Their Strange Skies, where we look at UFO incidents from other countries. Next week, the newest installment of the series will be released. It's about a unique set of abductions that occurred to one man in Italy in the late 1970s. Uh, they're called the Zamfretta abductions, and it is an absolutely crazy story. I can't wait to tell you uh, all about it. It's so, so crazy, and I think you're all going to love it. And it's going to be free for everyone. I want to give everyone a chance to see what the content we deliver over there is like, so everyone's going to be able to listen to this. Keep an eye out on social media platforms and on the next episode after it's released i'll let everyone know too in the next few weeks we will have uh bonus minisodes for the one dollar and three dollar patrons too kind of want to just give bonus content to everybody so you got that to look forward to shout out to my newest patron joseph barlow thank you for supporting the show and thank you to all the patrons that support us on patreon you help us with hosting research materials and soon we will have a website up and running. It's been a long time coming, but it's it's going to happen uh, in the next few weeks. Uh, it's just, it's has to happen. So I will let you all know when that happens. We have merch available in the Tee Public store. Check out the link in the show notes if you're interested in that. We have some new designs up now, too, from the great Desdemona, because she is just absolutely fucking great. They include uh, the Their Strange Skies design, as well as the UFO Book Club design. Uh, We also have some links to uh, great merch from other people's stores, including the Our UFO Dad stickers from John's Henny's store, and the Hynek shirt from Ryan Sprague. So go check all that out in the storefront. Um, That'll be in the show notes as well. 
Special thanks to the OSIC for all the hard work they do to help make this a better podcast. Uh, they're currently working on the 65 to 67 episodes, and it's a doozy. My buddy Rory, he's helping me with the Patreon, and a lot of great stuff is coming from the OSIC these days. So if you dig this show, give them a round of applause. Even if you're just in an empty room, just stand up, applaud them. Say thank you, Osik. You are amazing. Because they are amazing. Our logo was designed by Tessa Brown, and our theme song was composed by Shane Yoder over at PutThemInASong.com. And finally, don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies. We're great with us.